of all the words used to describe the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus yields in the heart of men and women, none is more powerful than one word, free. What a powerful word, free. And John chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus himself said to his fathers, followers, Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In Romans 8, verse 2, Paul echoes this incredible idea when he writes, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's a truth that liberty and freedom is the fundamental results of God's amazing grace. Grace makes you free. As famous preacher D.L. Moody once said, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are free. Because of Jesus and Jesus' work on the cross on your behalf, a work you could not accomplish apart from his direct involvement, you, friend, have been set free. You've been freed from the burden of the law, freed from expectation, freed from failure, freed from sin, free to enjoy God's favor and the life that favor provides. Grace yields freedom, and the results are incredible. And yet, how this word free is so rarely used to describe Christians. At least from the world's estimations, right? Instead, legalistic tends to be how many perceive the followers of Christ. You see, many view Jesus and Christianity as being restrictive, a killjoy, a party pooper, limiting as opposed to freeing, amazing, awesome, and liberating. This ought not be so. Can anyone honestly look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and reach the conclusion that Jesus was restrictive and limiting and a killjoy? No, quite the opposite. And the first nine verses of Galatians chapter 5, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Paul addresses the very liberty and the freedom that we have in grace, the freedom and liberty that grace affords, and he does this by contrasting it with bondage. Specifically, bondage yielded by religious legalism. Galatians chapter 5, we're going to read the first nine verses, kind of unpack the text, and while doing so, develop this idea of the liberty of grace. We read, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, our author, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is now a debtor to keep the whole law. You have been estranged from Christ You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him, speaking of Jesus, who calls you. And then he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now in this section of his letter to the Galatian churches, Paul is expounding on what it means, what it truly means to be a child of freedom, the results of the incredible grace of God. Now for context, it's important you understand that Paul closes out Galatians chapter 4 by making a bold declaration. He says, quote, So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now in verse 1 of Galatians 5, Paul applies this thought of our freedom by simply saying, by encouraging us to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and not to be tangled again with a yoke of bondage. Now, in building upon the theology of grace, Paul, he transitions here by referencing not just any type of freedom. You notice he's referencing something, a type of freedom that's very specific. He says, stand fast in what? In a liberty, not just any, but in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. This definite article, the liberty, it implies something distinctive, a distinct liberty, a particular liberty. <laughs> so what liberty is Paul referencing? Within our text, there are three clues. First, Paul is referencing a liberty that doesn't originate in country or constitution or for that matter, even you. Paul is referencing a liberty provided by Jesus. He writes, the liberty by which Jesus, by which Christ has made. Keep in mind the freedom Paul is referencing is something that resides in Jesus. Something that's afforded through a particular work he initiates and accomplishes on our behalf that liberates us. The second clue is, is that it appears Paul is referencing a liberty that exists regardless of your perspective. Not only is this a liberty provided by Jesus, but it exists. Paul says, Christ has made us free. You see, Paul is describing here a freedom that's sure, that's solid. <laughs> a freedom that's not up for debate. Whether you want to engage that freedom or not, it's there for the taking. Every Christian has been set free through the work of Jesus on Calvary. But there's a third clue to this particular liberty. By the very implication of Paul's exhortation to stand fast in this liberty, it seems evident that this freedom, this liberty he's describing, the liberty that exists for the believer, for you and I, that there are forces seeking to snatch that liberty away. So it's given by Jesus. It's there regardless of perspective, but we can leave it. It's why he says, do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The implications of this statement imply that it is entirely possible for the, a person freed by grace to revert again into bondage, which is why Paul invokes this powerful image with an exhortation. He says, choose, friend, brother, sister, believer, 
Stand fast in this. In the Greek, this word, standing fast, it means keep one standing in. Today we might say, like, grab hold and don't let go. It's given by Jesus. It's there for your enjoyment. And there are forces trying to take it away. Don't let anything take it from your dead, lifeless fingers. With these three clues in mind, that Paul is describing a liberty provided by Jesus, one that exists regardless of perspective, and one in which there are forces seeking to snatch it away, we know that, well, there are two things that Jesus has liberated us from. First, I hope you know this, that Jesus has freed you from the resulting bondage of moral expectations. The law. The law. All religious systems, our way of working and showing our worth to God, these merit-based processes, they're binding, and here's why. They demand you earn and then maintain God's favor. There is an expectation that you can't get away from. And yet it is grace alone provided in Jesus Christ that frees us from that expectation. Why? Because there's nothing I could do to earn God's favor. And instead that freedom has been given to me through Jesus. I have been made right with God apart from my involvement. While the law enslaves you to pursue this idea of measuring up. It is grace that removes those shackles, allowing you to simply enjoy a relationship with God. And that is freeing, friend, to know always that God loves you and cares for you and is proud of you, that his love for you doesn't change. Hey, if you do something great, his love didn't change. He loved you just as much after you did something great as before. Meaning, whatever you did, you didn't have to do to earn more of God's love. And on the flip side, if you did something terrible, do you know God loves you just as much before you did something terrible as he does after? You see, God's love is not predicated upon your performance, but is instead predicated upon Jesus' performance on the cross, and he was a worthy Savior. But there's a second thing beyond the bondage of moral expectations that Jesus has freed us from. Jesus has freed us from the resulting bondage of what I'm going to call self-rule. It's sad, but as Americans, it's so easy with our political context and traditional understanding of freedom that we allow these things to kind of warp our understanding of what Paul means, what Scripture means when we talk about freedom and liberty. As a matter of fact, it's this misunderstanding of what liberty means in a biblical context that eventually fosters fear and legalism. For many, liberty is defined as this. The freedom to do what I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. Matter of fact, it's kind of the libertarian motto. As deist Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You all heard that. 
Now consider, though, the flaw in this notion. Does the liberty to live my life however I want in pursuit of happiness, does that actually make me free? The truth is, is it doesn't. Understand something about this letter, what Paul is saying, liberty in context to a group of people, Galatians, living in a Roman world. You see, no one reading Paul's letter would have processed liberty as living free of authority. Like there was no such thing. They rightly understood something that we so quickly have forgotten. Everyone has a master. The great poet Bob Dylan, everybody serves somebody. In America, you might be free to pursue whatever it is that you think will make you happy. But don't mistake that for liberty, because it's not. The founding fathers specifically sought limited government, not with the aim of no government, but in the pursuit of self-governance. Instead of a king ruling over every man, our founders wanted a system where each man was free to rule himself. Jefferson should have written instead, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that all are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, the freedom to govern oneself, and pursue what makes him happy. That is the American ideal. Sure, while living in America with a constitution and a bill of rights means that we are, to a degree, free of a tyrannical government that seeks to impose its will on our lives, <clears throat> at least we were, in the end, in the end, the freedom to do whatever you want and the pursuit of whatever makes you happy doesn't yield liberty. Instead, it yields servitude to these pursuits. And that's a distinction you need to understand. What many fail to realize is that liberty, as Jefferson described, doesn't guarantee freedom of the masses when all it accomplishes is the enthronement of each man over his own life so he can pursue his own happiness. Instead here, the only thing liberty in this context actually accomplishes is the enslavement of men to their own pursuit. Here's why this is the case. And it's kind of a fundamental biblical idea. Man is not conditioned or created to rule himself. You were created to be ruled. I, I, that, that doesn't sit well, I know. But that is a truth. Think back to Genesis, the first couple chapters. We noted that Adam, the first man created perfect by God before the fall even, right? Adam was given dominion over all of creation, wasn't he? And yet he wasn't given dominion over himself. You see, the way that the Bible establishes a hierarchy of authority is, yes, man is over creation, but man is under God. As a matter of fact, Satan's original lie in the garden was to challenge that. 
God, man, creation, and Satan comes along and says, yo, you, don't, you can be your own God. You don't, you don't need this authority. You don't need this rule. You don't need this thing above you. And yet, what happened when Adam and Eve actually ate of the fruit? Were they now void of authority? No, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says that in that moment, man exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And then he says, and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. While true that you have complete control over who or what sits on the throne in your life. Don't be mistaken. There is one person who can't sit on that throne. You. You can't sit there. Like, this is what makes liberty in the American context so misleading. Though you've been given freedom to self-govern, the irony is that you will always advocate the throne to someone or something other than yourself. It's how you were created. It's how you were designed. It is your default. You're created to be ruled, and that ruler can't be you. It's why the idea of true liberty is nothing more than a mirage. It's a facade. Look around for just a minute at our culture founded upon the freedom to pursue what makes us happy. Though it is true that we're genuinely free, generally free, to do what we want to do. Would you say, in looking at America, Americans, walking in liberty, you think they're free or in bondage? Honestly, the majority of people living the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not free, nor are they happy, ironically. In actuality, they're empty and miserable, which is not a surprise when you realize whatever it is you're pursuing to provide happiness is the very thing you're going to enthrone and then bound yourself to serve. Like, let me just repeat that because that's, that's a, a pivotal point. Whatever it is you're pursuing to provide you happiness, you will in turn automatically enthrone that thing in your life and then bound yourself to serve it. This is why pursuing happiness and money, what we'd call materialism, or I, I would be happy if I was just famous, like a Kardashian, egotism, or, or sex, hedonism. I'll pursue that, or, or, or body, selfism, or maybe charity, altruism, or vice, sensationalism. You see, these things, when you pursue them to make you happy, not only prove to be vain, but in the end, these things bind you to only deeper and further pursuits. You see, the truth is that if you're pursuing sex to find meaning, or money to find meaning, or fame to find meaning, all that will result isn't meaning, but bondage. You will enslave yourself to that thing, wanting more. John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil, 
was the wealthiest man maybe to have ever lived. His net worth in today's standards would have been around $350 billion. Keep that in billion. That's more than three times uh, Amazon or, uh, or Bill Gates. And he was asked, 51 years old, dying of stomach ulcers on nothing but a bread and milk diet. He was asked, how much more money do you need? And he famously replied, one more dollar. $350 billion. He, he had everything he could ever spend a lot. Rockefeller money still exists. Didn't make him happy. Left him incomplete. All of these things, all they do is yield servitude and bondage. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to tread lightly here, but I think you'll get my point. If you need to shed a few pounds for health reasons, hey man, knock yourself out. More power to you. But if you need, or if the motivation for losing weight is based on deeper insecurities about the way that you look, thus losing weight is more about being happy than it is healthy, this is what will happen. If you need to lose weight so you can feel happy, you will enslave yourself to the pursuit of that through some diet or gym. But it's a trap, isn't it? Because guess what? You finally hit that optimal weight, but now you've got to work even harder to maintain that weight. You become a gym junkie, a diet junkie. That's why I just say to heck with it and get fat. <laughs> Solomon, Solomon. He wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. A man who pursued it all. He says, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. So keep in mind, the liberty described in Scripture isn't freedom from governance or servitude. It isn't freedom from authority. God made you to be ruled. Instead, the liberty that grace affords the liberty, the freedom that Paul is describing is life under the enthronement of a worthy Savior and King. It's not the freedom of rule, it's to have a good ruler. You see, the liberty that you've been given by Jesus through his grace is not now the freedom to do whatever you want, which ironically just leads you back into the bondage of self-rule and the servitude of those pursuits. But instead, this is a liberty that provides the opportunity to finally live according to the way that you were designed. Man, over creation, under God, under the rule of Jesus. This means real liberty, lasting freedom, can only be found in one way. Absolute surrender to Jesus. This is why Paul pleads that we stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In the end, Paul is making the argument 
That because legalism heralds things to do and things to refrain from doing as the basis for earning and then maintaining God's favor, in actuality, legalism enthrones the rule of self over Jesus, leading to bondage and to freedom. Paul continues by explaining this thought as to why it is that legalism runs counter to freedom that we have in grace. Verses 2 and 3, he writes, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who's become circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. Before we unpack this, let me just kind of tactfully define circumcision before we discuss it. The Urban Dictionary defines circumcision as, quote, circumcision is a surgical procedure that removes a male's foreskin. That's not what you really expected from Urban Dictionary. Um, the way I like to just kind of paint as far as a picture goes, circumcision is a surgery that turns a man's turtleneck into a crew cut. Circumcision. Circumcision, it is found in the law of Moses. You'll find circumcision laid out in the law in Leviticus 12, verses 2 and 3. But it's important to keep this in mind. Circumcision predated the law. Yes, it's in the law, but it predated the law. In Genesis 17, what happens? God appeared to Abraham and said, quote, This is my covenant between me and you and your descendants. Every male child among you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin as a sign of the covenant between me and you. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Now understand, and this is what many people get wrong, circumcision was not given as the sign of the law, the Mosaic law. Circumcision was given as a physical reminder of a covenant that God made with Abraham. And what was that covenant? It wasn't one of works or one of law or one of legalism. It was the sign that God would provide a savior through Abraham's lineage. In Genesis 15, verse 6, before this, before circumcision, we're told that Abraham believed what? That God would provide a savior, and it was that belief accounted to him for righteousness. In Romans 4, verse 11, Paul would later write that Abraham received the sign of circumcision 14 years after being declared righteous by God, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while he was uncircumcised, that he might be a father to everyone who believes, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness will be imputed to them, not something earned. See, the Jews in Paul's day had come to see circumcision as being an external act that brought with it God's acceptance and entry into the family lineage of Abraham. On a side note, it's why Jews wanted Gentiles to become circumcised. But the, the, the fact is, is that circumcision presented the opposite reality. David Guzik remarks, Circumcision is a cutting away of the flesh and an appropriate sign of the covenant for those who would put no trust in the flesh. Circumcision does not represent the law of Moses, but instead is an act that physically represented one's internal faith in a coming Savior. It was an outward sign of something that had taken place inwardly. You would compare it today to baptism. An outward sign of something that's happened inwardly. I am so glad that the church was given baptism and not circumcision. See, it demonstrates faith. 
faith in a Savior. And, and this is illustrated by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the men of faith that came even before the law. Furthermore, not to get off track, but I think it's interesting. The scriptures are clear that the procedure of circumcision was specifically to take place on the eighth day following a child's birth. And that's important because according to biblical numerology, the number eight represents a new beginning, a new order, a new creation. It can literally signify being born again. Circumcision, the sign of being born again. And it's with this understanding that we can begin to realize why Paul would now say to a group of uncircumcised Gentiles, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing because every man who becomes circumcised is now a debtor to keep the whole law. Like Paul's point here is that since the Savior had already come in a person of Jesus, this is after the cross, partaking now in a physical act that represented faith in a coming Savior would now signify the opposite. It would signify unbelief or a failure to recognize Jesus as the Savior. It explains why Paul says, Christ will profit you nothing, or literally, Christ will not be able to assist you. It's like Paul is saying, who cares about faith in a coming Savior when that Savior has already come? It's his point. Now, continuing his logic, Paul then reasons that if Jesus is rejected as the Savior... If you reject Jesus as your Savior, grace, everything he did, it's made of no effect. It doesn't help you if you reject him. Like At that point, all the act of circumcision, this act of faith in a coming Savior, it makes what Jesus did null and void and then places that person back under religious obligations of the law, which accentuates your need for a Savior. Paul adds in verse 4, in such a dynamic, you have become estranged from Christ, or, or Christ is of no effect. You who attempt to be justified by law, he says, then you have fallen from grace. The flow of Paul's argument is simple. Rejecting Christ as your Savior defaults your justification away from being a manifestation of God's grace demonstrated through Jesus' death and now back onto your efforts and your attempts to earn God's favor. Let me define justification. To be justified is when God sees a person just as if I'd never sinned. I'm righteous. I'm cleansed. I'm pure. I'm white as snow, the psalmist declares. So if you reject Jesus and the fact that it's his work that made you cleansed, justified, pure and holy, now you're back under the law, which has all these rules and regulations that you can then employ to try to make yourself justified. But it's folly. Instead of righteousness, the only thing produced is bondage. And using this dramatic phrase, you have fallen from grace, Paul is not speaking of, of moral failure, but he's describing the person who's no longer trusting in Jesus for their justification. Instead of the freedom now that grace provides, this person is back under an immense burden of the law, now enslaved once again to the very pursuit to prove one's worthiness before God. Paul then explains why such a tragedy should be avoided. Verse 5 and 6, he says, For we through the Spirit eagerly, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. But this is what avails something. Faith working through love. Now, back up just a minute. What is the hope of righteousness? So like, what do we hope our righteousness avails? Like, the word hope can be better translated as expectation. So, so the question would be better, better phrased. What is the, once again, another definite article, the expectation of our righteousness? You come to Jesus, his righteousness is placed on your account, you're now justified before God. His grace is poured abundantly upon you. What now should you expect? The main expectation. Is it heaven? No. Heaven is the result of one's righteousness. Is it a relationship with Jesus? Is that the expectation? No. Jesus is the reason for our righteousness. Is it justification? Is that the expectation? No. Justification is the mechanism by which you're righteous. Understand, the expectation of your right position before God, provided by grace, a gift, not your merit, your worthiness, you earning it, is that that standing, something God gives to you, will yield in your life righteous living. It's what will be produced, holiness, which is in line with everything Paul's been saying. This expectation is not something you're to be pursuing or working for, or for that matter, even focused upon, but is instead something the believer is to be patiently waiting to see accomplished. How? Paul says it in the text. The expectation of our righteousness, godly living. Do you work for it? Do you earn it? Do you, what, how does it happen? He says, through the Spirit. Paul then says, For in Christ Jesus neither, which, which is better translated, and not circumcision or uncircumc uncircumcision avails anything. The, the word avail, it, it means to be strong or to have power. You see, in regards to the manifestation of, of righteous living, being a better person, the hope of your righteousness, Paul is saying, that the power or the availing comes how? In Christ Jesus. So it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's not what you do or what you don't do. But these things happen one way. By faith working through love. This is radical. For Paul is saying that the power to please God manifests in your life by faith in Jesus working through your love for Jesus, which don't forget, according to 1 John 4.19, you love him because he first loved you. It's faith. It's grace. It's love. Love, by the very fact that it is a verb, it's never meant to remain static. And love always determines to be active. This is what Paul said. While grace indeed, indeed frees me to do whatever I want, it is also because grace floods my heart with a love for Jesus that now today, all I want is to please him. Because grace changes my heart, because it transforms my internal motivations, it naturally changes my behaviors. 
See, I serve Jesus today, not out of compulsion, not out of requirement, not out of obligation. I serve Jesus for one reason. I'm free to love him. Martin Luther, he wrote, This grace of God is very great, strong, mighty, and active. It does not lie asleep in the soul. Grace hears, leads, drives, draws, changes, works all in man, and lets itself be distinctly felt and experienced. Grace is hidden, but its works are evident. This now explains why Paul, he finishes out his thought, verses 7 and 9. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from Jesus who called you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. This phrase, you ran well. It's, it's a sad phrase because right from the beginning, it's in the past tense. You ran well. Like when Paul had left these believers, these churches, they were fine. They were running the race. They were engaged in the action. Grace was yielding. But something now had clearly tripped up their progress. He asked them, who hindered you? Or literally cut into your lane. Who tripped you up from what? From obeying the truth. You see, someone had infiltrated these churches in Galatia. Someone was teaching a perversion. A treacherous and, and deceptive perversion. That ran counter to the person and the work of Jesus. Him who calls you. This persuasion, this perversion that Paul is referencing, what is it? I don't have time to unpack it, but let me just explain it in just three simple ways. It was a gospel distortion. A distortion that didn't believe that, that grace alone could be enough. That grace, period, was all I needed. You see, these false teachers had come in saying, hey, yeah, God's grace is awesome, comma, and the things that you do. Moralism. They also taught, hey, God's grace is, is awesome, comma, but, you know, here's a list of things you shouldn't do. Legalism. You see, they were adding moralism to God's grace. They were adding legalism to God's grace. They were tacking on things to do to show God you're worthy and things to refrain from doing to prove to God you're worthy, and they were distorting the gospel. They were also presenting a grace so I can do anything distortion as well. Most amazingly, Paul is, is saying here that legalism, these distortions, what was it doing? The opposite thing they were claiming to do. You see, we, we tack on these rules and regulations to God's grace in order to enhance obedience, right? Instead of letting grace do its thing, we say, friend, hey, it's God's grace, and, and then we give a long list of things you need to get doing. And that helps. That helps you be a better Christian, right? Or it's grace, but hey, these are a long list of things you shouldn't do. All with the idea that it'll help you be a better Christian. Paul says the opposite occurs. He says these persuasions, all they did was what? They robbed you of obedience. They were hindering them from obedience. You see, here's why legalism ultimately hinders spiritual growth. It robs you from the power of God's transforming grace 
because it promotes the enthronement of self, which we've talked about, you can never be on the throne, over that of Jesus. You see, when your motivation for righteous living becomes anything other than a responding act, reciprocation, of God's love for you, your spiritual life will be stifled. Legalism, things to do, things self can do, things self can refrain from doing, it robs you of the freedom to just enjoy Jesus, to enjoy a relationship with him. And instead, it, it re-enslaves you to the bondage of religion and self-rule. The warning of this passage, the underlying reason that Paul commands you and I to stand firm in this liberty by which Christ has made us free, is that it doesn't take much to knock us off course. It doesn't take much to be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. It doesn't take much for you to be hindered from obeying the truth. Paul closes by just saying a little leaven is all that's needed to leaven the whole lump. His point is that just a little corruption, a little warp in our thinking, has the uncanny ability to corrupt everything. I can make a whole thing of brownies, and they might smell delicious. I just put a little pinch of dog poop in them. You ain't going to eat them. I mean, 99.9% .9 of them all, it looks great. But if you know there's a little dog poop, the whole batch is spoiled. This is what he's saying, a little leaven. It destroys it all. Legalism, friend. It must be resisted at all costs because it will rob you of the liberty in Jesus by returning you to bondage. Legalism will take what Jesus did and make it of no profit, placing you under obligation. Legalism will violate and limit the work of the Spirit in your life by substituting love for obligation as our driver for godliness. Legalism, friend, it's dangerous because it vacates Jesus from his proper role, that of Savior. In closing, as your pastor, and, and after I admit this, I might not be some of your pastor, I, I do kind of need to make just a small confession. Here it goes. I watch HBO's hit show, Game of Thrones, and I like it. I know, it's a shocker. Now, up front, if you don't watch Game of Thrones for moral reasons, more power to you. It's not for everyone. As long as you don't think abstaining from the greatest show on television makes you more holier than the brothers and sisters that do enjoy watching it. Now, I say this. I say this to bring up the fact that in this past Sunday's episode, there was a scene that perfectly illustrates the freedom grace affords. And, and frankly, it illustrates everything Paul is trying to say in this particular passage. It's a fascinating scene. But one of the heroes of the show, a guy by the name of Jon Snow, he has a conversation with the chief advisor of Queen Daenerys. Now, I'm not going to go into explaining those people. You don't need to understand who they are to get the point of the scene. Guys, if you could quickly roll it. Why did you leave your homeland? I was stolen away by slavers. 
I'm sorry. If I may, how did a slave girl come to advise Daenerys Targaryen? She bought me from my master and set me free. That was good of her. Of course, you're serving her now, aren't you? I serve my queen because I want to serve my queen. Because I believe in her. And if you wanted to sail home to Narth tomorrow? Then she would give me a ship and wish me good fortune. You believe that? I know it. All of us who came with her from Essos, we believe in her. She's not our queen because she's the daughter of some king we never knew. She's the queen we chose. Will you forgive me if I switch sides? Did you catch that? Like here's a woman who's been formally in bondage, taken at a young age by slavers, yet now is completely free to do whatever she wants. She's under no obligation, no expectation. Her freedom was given to her with zero strings attached. As a matter of fact, at any moment, she could take a ship and sail back to her home country. And yet, she willingly chooses and an act of genuine freedom to serve the very queen who liberated her, who set her free. Since it is a fact that everyone serves someone, you were created to serve something. This is why grace yields freedom. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus died to set you free from the enslavement of sin. He did that with no strings attached. Your freedom is based on a work that Jesus did for you and not one you could have ever done for yourself. His grace was demonstrated to you without expectation of a future obligation. Your service is not required for His salvation. And yet, here's the kicker. Because of this freedom... You can do something you could never have done before. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you have the freedom to do something you could have never done apart from that work. Choose to freely serve Jesus. In light of grace, your service can now be a free response to his love. As opposed to being a way for you to earn his love. Because of grace, your service can flow from the favor that he secured for you and not a way for you to earn his favor. Because of grace, you don't have to demonstrate how good you are. You can serve as a natural response of how good he's been to you. While the law demands you serve, it is grace that enables you to serve out of freedom. Though Jon Snow remains skeptical as to whether or not such a freedom could really exist, he even says, do you really believe that? I love how his counselor, Sir Davos, responds to everything he just heard. He turns to Jon Snow and he says, would you forgive me if I switch sides? That is the appropriate response. Friend, there is 
no greater king than Jesus. You will serve something. Isn't Jesus the best option? His grace is free for you. And he demonstrates it with no expectation of anything in return. That said, and the presence of such love and kindness, is there anyone you'd rather choose to serve than he? The liberty of grace means I get to freely enthrone Christ and serve him. And that is awesome. And so, Father, Lord, we just let...